Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Like, yeah. If we can take a second, liberal, conservative, anybody across the country, take a second to identify that we are not We are a superpower, but we are not by any stretch the greatest whatever. But responsibility of being a superpower is that we have to push ourselves to be the greatest. And we got to lift ourselves to that point. And that comes from bringing up knowledge and bringing up our uneducated are the most uneducated in the world. But we can do better. And we have that obligation to do better because we are the superpower for now. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Discover More. Where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Absolutely. So, quick question for you, John. So, for someone who's in the trenches, so to speak, who is immersed in this political field, legal field, although you're not in the politics yet,、yeah. with your future potential planning, how do you battle and balance your cynicalism because of your hyper exposure on both sides of the spectrum versus your own mental health sanity? And how do you navigate that just throughout your day to life, whether professionally or personally speaking? So, first off, I definitely I try to take every day, one day at a time. I don't know what my future is going to look like. I know that you o k n when w I came to law school, I wanted to be in politics. And because I had a certain set of beliefs about the way that politics works and about how law is, first off, I'm in therapy and I have been since probably the beginning of law school, just because like, I think everybody should be talking to somebody. And I don't have any disorders or you know, anything diagnosable. It's just nice to. You know, check in and be like, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. And like, sometimes those sessions just turn into like, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. Like, I don't, I'll have to pick kind of a, a specialty, if you will, in law at some point because I can't just go out there and be like, I'm a lawyer now. Like, I have to do a thing and like figuring out, you know, how my identity lines up with career paths. Like, it's just nice to talk to somebody about that. So that definitely helps.、Um, work out, go to the gym, friends, family. Pretty much the standard operating procedures. And, And you gotta make time for them. And you gotta just do them. And like I, like I said earlier, like my phone gets like 100,000 notifications a day with every stupid news thing that happens, an opinion article that comes out, and you know, this stock moved that, and that politician said this, and this country said that. And I like to be that up to date. But I also know that at 11 o'clock, I put my phone on do not disturb and it's away. And when I'm at the gym, do not disturb, block the timeout. And cynicism is tough. That's the hardest one. 
especially since probably 2016, because I'm also a business guy and I like to think that numbers and data don't lie. And I thought that 2016 was going to go in a particular way and it's not. And it reflected a particular experience that was existing in this country that I wasn't lending credence to. And I had not yet been given an education in being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And so the fact that a sufficient enough of people were experiencing something that I didn't want to believe existed resulted in the election results that happened, challenged my belief in what was happening in America at the time. And it sucked because it wasn't what I thought was right. And so that was the beginning of cynicism. Since then, small wins here and there, little stuff, therapy, friends, family, and the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> as much as they fuck me out sometimes, the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> it's a good time. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, mentioned that particularly because I shared this with the previous guest, Malaki, that we interviewed last week. And since this recording is taking place in September, uh, you may be aware of this since you're very informed. Uh, September is Suicide Prevention Month. And I share that because I will be in the process and next year I'll be taking a hard pivot from my current policy around. So I work for an NGO and so I work with the government. Um, on the hinges of politics aspect, and I find myself very disheartened and becoming gradually more and more cynical for the past few years, which is the reason why I made it an intention, a very, very primary intention to not expose myself to the news and the outlet. And we shared about this a little bit before I started recording that for the longest time, including during my college days and my grad school days, I subscribed to the idea of information as power, right? Knowledge is power. And I think there is difference between information and knowledge, but for the current political climate and the current conversation sake, I just want to focus on information aspect. I realize this for me personally, and to me, it's more about appliances power. And what I mean by that is it's explained that it's not about what you know and what you perceive and what you receive from the information, but what you do with the information, how are you applying to your day to life? And for me personally, because of my current involvement in mental health with the government, with the policy, I realized information wasn't power for me. I felt weak, I felt powerless, I felt not nihilistic, but I just felt very insignificant in terms of the large process of the complications, the complexity. And I realized I wasn't, I didn't have the power to influence that in a positive way. So I think for, not just because the thematic of this month being Suicide Prevention Month, but I think a lot of people share that similar mindset as I do. A lot of uh, people in their late 20s like we are, they don't read the news. They don't subscribe to the news for the exact reason. And for you who listens to and who watches both sides, I know you told us earlier that you watch Fox because it's important to stay informed, not because you necessarily agree with what their opinions are or their stances. So I thought it was really uh, valuable to share some of the things that you're doing. And I think the toolkits and I think the importance of mental health should be discussed every step of the way. And like you talked about, you take every single day as it is and you take every little wins as they are to help you with your day-to-day -day life. So I thought uh, that was really useful and thanks for sharing. Yeah, I think it's also, we go to the doctor every year to get a physical checkup. We go to the dentist every six months to get our teeth checked. Like we take care of our physical body. That's a 
a proudful thing that you do, you know? Insurance companies want to pay for your yearly checkup because it's more cost-effective for them to pay for the yearly checkup than to wait for you to get cancer and have to pay for that later. Like, it's better to deal with your six-month cleaning than a root canal in three years. Like, but the fact that we haven't considered mental health to be as a part of the whole general health thing is crazy, which is why, you know, let off the answer to that question by saying that I'm in therapy because that should be a thing that we talk about as just normal, you know? What are you doing for your mental health? I meditate, I go to the gym, and I'm in therapy. Because, again, that goes back to the, you know, nuanced, complicated problem question. Because we, our values are shown by where we spend money. And insurance companies don't really pay for mental health. And so then it's an expensive proposition. And then, you know, the median household income is, what, $56,000 a year? And they're paying rent and school and food and mortgage and just like, and all of a sudden you're going to make them pay $100 extra a week for mental health therapy? No, I'm going to, you know, not do that. Money speaks to values. Therapy was one of the most profoundly helpful things that I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And I shifted from therapy to coaching about two years ago. And that still seemed to weigh, but I completely agree. Everyone should be talking to someone, even as a friend. You know what I mean? Like, even if it's a family member, a friend, like, just bouncing ideas off other people helps so much. So regardless of if it's, obviously, there is the money component of a professional service that I think is a problem that needs to be addressed going forward, uh, making that more accessible, how the health system actually comes into play with that. I think there is some promising, I guess, developments in just online. I think there's been a big shift towards telemedicine and teletherapy, yeah. obviously, because we can't go anywhere. Um, but I think that's maybe like looking for the benefit of this whole pandemic, kind of seeing what is really possible of the convenience, the accessibility of necessary health steps like that. So I'm personally thinking of in trying out the teletherapy sometime in the next future. I mean, there is a difference of meeting with someone in person and over the phone, but it still seems like pretty much the same idea. Finding silver lining, little wins. This pandemic has been a fucking monstrosity of a mental health stress on myself and the generation of the country, the world. Like we are experiencing a global tragedy all together, all at once. And, you know, March, April, like, I was bad. It was bad. But little one day wins silver linings, I think. Like, I don't know. I lived in Israel for a year. I lived in Rome for a couple months. And, like, once travel starts back up, if we stay in this work, like, remote work thing, like, I can go back to those places. I can travel the world. I can see the, like, no longer confined to having to be in New York City to practice big law. I could go do it in remote locations in beautiful nature in you know european getaways and israeli beach towns in southeast asia if i want like it took a while to get to that place because the world was kind of scary in april and, and march and may silver linings it's a little winds little winds. all the time i would like to maybe shift gears a little bit out of the heaviness of the pandemic i think everyone's listened through this or experienced through it for a while you mentioned that you lived in Israel for a year. I did. Could you tell us a little more about that? When yeah, was sure. it? What'd you get up to? So just by way of, of context, growing up, I went to a overnight summer camp. Uh, I started there when I was in third grade. It's a camp called Camp Khalil. It's in suburban Philadelphia. It's probably like an hour and 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. So it's part of a youth movement, kind of subscribes to a particular set of ideologies and you know, it's summer camp, fun, you know, sports and playing and hanging out with your friends, but also there's sort of like 
an educational, ideological undertone to all of the things. Mm-hmm. And we can get into that at a different time, but that's what I was a part of from the time I was nine until I graduated high school. And as a part of this youth movement, they have a one-year, like, gap year trip. Closest probable equivalent is, like, a mission trip, but, like, they're not really equivalent. And so the trip is called Workshop, and it's a program that's been going on for... 71 years at this point. I was on the 61st iteration of it. Uh, my mom had gone on the program, you know, 30 some odd years prior. My uncle, family is obviously an important thing to me. I don't know if you could tell, I've been doing a lot of reflecting back on that, but you know, my mom, my uncle went on the same program, like, and basically the premise of the program is you go to Israel and immerse yourself in, in the culture and you learn a little bit Hebrew and the language and the history and the politics. And then you kind of get out into what are called mesimot, which is, you know, mission activity. I don't really know what the direct translation is, but essentially what we did was we spent a couple months, you know, learning the politics, learning the history, learning the language. And then probably the back nine months, eight months, we were traveling to different Arab communities within Israel. So Israel's demographic makeup, it's predominantly Jewish towns all over, but there's a pretty big Arab population still within the country. Some Christian Arabs, some Muslim Arab, and you know they kind of live in their own towns, and we don't have to get into the whole history and political history of Israel, but there's obviously tension in the Middle East. It's been there since the 40s, and before the 40s, and you know Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like it's people know. And so basically the premise was that we went on this trip, we lived there, we learned it, we kind of immersed ourselves in it, and we were this English, Jewish, labor Zionist group that would go into these Arab towns and teach English in high schools and after school clubs. And the premise was that, you know, we're going to meet on this common ground of of English because most people don't equate English speaking with Jewish people. Like that's, those are not connections that people make in any sort of stereotypical way. So we'd go in and we'd teach English, values-based education in English to everywhere from fourth grade to 12th grade in schools and after school programs with the idea that we connect on English and ultimately, you know, you're Arab, Christian, Muslim, Arab, and I'm, you know, Jewish with this connection to Israel, but we can meet on this common ground. We can kind of see this humanity and bridge those divides, bridge those differences that like we just get developed by the lack of exposure to each other. In the north of Israel, Arab towns are Arab towns. Like there aren't a lot of Jewish people in the Arab towns. They're, here's the Arab town, here's the Jewish town, and they're pretty, you know, separate, and they kind of stay in their own place. And so I was able to kind of break through those stereotypical barriers that hopefully, in a long run, lead to, like, the metaphor before, that, you know, identifying the humanity between each other, seeing the meat and potatoes as the meat and potatoes. We can talk about the Brussels sprouts, division of land, and what happened in the 40s. Like, all of that can be a, a conversation, but, like, getting through that first barrier of identifying the humanity between two people. So that was sort of the mission of the trip. I spent a year there doing that. Did it with about 22 other people. It was a very valuable experience, especially for, you know, an 18-year-old right after ending high school, right before going to, you know, Penn State, which is like a wholly different experience compared to, to that. But it was definitely a quick maturation process and a really, really instilling those values of, of kind of that human connection and, and humanity and slow and steady quest to something bigger and better. Cause you know, 
one of my classes was me, my co-teacher that I was working with, and like six people in a senior high school class in their their version of AP English. Like, mm-hmm. you know, these were these were the best of the best English speakers in this particular class. These people were were my age. I was eighteen. They were eighteen, and we were just like chilling and talking. And you know, my co-teacher at the time was on his way to Michigan State. Like, we were about to go to these like Big Ten, like big American college experience type schools, and these women that we were talking to just had wholly different experiences from us. We were able to, to kind of meet in that place. We're just like, oh, like you've grown up in a particular class in a particular country. And like, I don't know what that's like. And I, I can't know what that's like. The best I can do is just like, listen. And, you know, I don't speak Arabic, so like I couldn't connect on that place. But being able to find that common humanity, it, it really, you really get a feel for what a, a human experience is like. What were some of the big takeaways? I mean, I guess first I'd like to acknowledge it sounds like you're doing the uncomfortable. So maybe speak to that a little bit in what you mentioned earlier, diving into those uncomfortable situations. Doing this at 18 sounds kind of uncomfortable going across the world completely by yourself. So was this in fact uncomfortable while you were over there? And what are some of the things that allowed you to see or like realize? First off, I wasn't necessarily by myself, which was nice. So... The whole like youth movement culture is the idea of futsa, which mm-hmm. is like group, directly translates to group, but it kind of has this like higher implication of, you know, you know, all in this together for a greater purpose, for a greater cause, give what you can, take what you need. It's like socialist in mantra, but like that's sort of the underlying tone of it all. So I definitely wasn't alone. I kind of had like-minded people who kind of had this openness towards that experience mm-hmm. in terms of uncomfortable I love my dad to death, but, you know, he grew up as an Israeli in Israel, like, went to the military. They have mandatory conscription, so everybody is is military, and so there is a militarization there, and there is an othering there, because, like, that's part of what you do in war. And he fought in the Lebanon War in the 80s and was injured in the Lebanon War in the 80s, so, like, there there was just a fundamental othering of another human being, because you had to. You know, we can get into the philosophy of war. Obviously, that's not for this podcast now here today. But, like, I grew up in a household and was raised by an individual who just othered a whole class of people because they had to. And so by me going into Arab schools and teaching English was just against that nature. What did I learn? I learned that people find happiness in the littlest of things and even in the hardest of times. Like, back to our conversation about those people that are living on a dollar a day. And those people that, you know, are marginalized and are the margins of society, like they're not destitute and they're not less than and they're not they're not this other. They find happiness in the same things that, you know, you and I find happiness in. Like we wake up and we feel like we have a purpose to do something. And, you know, I go to class and I learn and, you know, I like making friends and meeting new people and the same thing. Like they were so open. I constantly getting invited to dinners and lunches and things like even being at the margins of society. It was the first like real seeing that stories that aren't your own are still happening and they're still important and they're likely not that far off. Granted, the, my 12th grade students weren't thinking about college. Like that's just, that wasn't an option for them. But they were thinking about their, their future and their life and what it looks like and you know their purpose and how they can you know build something for themselves and what the structures of their society allow them to and don't allow them to. And they weren't cynical. They just lived life. It was a pretty powerful experience as an 18 year old. 
Uh, thanks for sharing. Uh, I think there is a lot there. I think one of the skill sets and one of the functions of a lawyer, not in particular way, but it's your ability to navigate between conflicts, right? And it sounds like to me that when you visited Israel, you had the once a lifetime opportunity that not many people share. And I know a lot of uh, ethnic Jewish, they have the ability to go there for a year for free, right? Uh, Israel, 10 days. 10 days. Yeah. So I have a few friends like that, but you've had the prolonged experience of a year. And it sounds like to me that you've had the opportunity to venture into this bubble and this region of conflicts. And of course, I'm sure many of us understands the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of the longest lasting and most prevalent conflicts in, in the world. Hella complex. Yeah. And not something we can do in one podcast. Yeah, extremely. <laughs> We're not even going to attempt. Yeah, super complex. But I think by having that you as an 18-year-old adolescent, uh, barely an adult, legally speaking, you've had the ability and you have the opportunity to take a peek into the conflicts. And I'm sure, like you talked about, you had to navigate and maneuver the pressure from your father because of he was grew up with a particular mindset because of upbringings, because he had to treat and he had to have otherism in his viewpoint against the uh, other sets of classes. Uh, what do you think you've learned and taken away from that? Because I think another complications of this pure climate is the conflicts. It's conflicts between left and right, between the liberals and the conservatives, uh, you name it. The conflicts are all around us. So how would you recommend someone who have a unique experience and with the education background as you do and with experience that you do, uh, how do you personally navigate conflicts and what are some of the takeaways and toolkits you advise all of us of how and how we should all perceive and how navigate conflicts in a very harmonic or in a very human way? So in a human way, I think it circles back again to that, that meat and potatoes analogy that we had and the identifying the humanity in a person and realizing that you know, everybody's got their story and their thing, but like generally has the same baseline of what they want to be happy. From a legal education perspective, when you're putting together a case, part of creating your case theory and developing, you know, what it is, the arguments that you are going to make, you know, defend your side or, you know, progress your whatever, requires an understanding and an articulation of the counter arguments to all of that. The best attorney can stand on any side of an argument and do it develop a story and create, you know, a theory of a case and, and build rational points around it and, and be persuasive about those things, regardless of a side or an opinion or whatever, because true conflict arises where validity lies on both sides, like where there validity in the sense that like your emotions that you're feeling are valid. You have to validate that sets of facts and data lend to validity. You have to validate that where there is validity on a particular point on both sides, you lead to conflict. If all of us agree that the sky is blue, science says so, all of our feelings say so, all of our shared experiences said so, there are very few people out here looking up at the sky and saying it's not blue, perhaps the people on the West Coast who it's smoky. But like, <laughs> that aside, most of us just kind of agree, sky is blue, no conflict. Because there's no validity to the fact that the sky is not blue. When you reach points of conflict, understanding the points of validity on the other side better allow you to deal with the conflicts. A, in terms of, you know, sense of winning, like if you want to win a conflict and you know what's coming from the other side, you're just going to do a better job. But B, in terms of like the empathy that underlies that, if you can lend credence to somebody's like, oh, that's a good point, that's real, that allows for the connection on both sides and stops being so contentious and 
this piece of validity is is good and I'll accept that and, and really feel for that. Yeah, so human element and from a legal education's point, like recognizing the sides of an argument and the valid points of each side of a conflict might have. That's an awesome point. I'm a little hesitant to make a sports analogy, but we've been running with the Eagles, so I might as well run with it. But it's like studying game tape. You know, the offense is going to look how the defense plays. The defense is going to look at the offense. And similarly, when managing conflict, whether that's political, economic, like no matter what the conflict is, you need to see where the person on the other side is coming from. Just how Carson Wentz needs to know what the defensive backs are going to be doing. You need to know where that person coming to, what your audience looks like. Similarly, with writing, you need to know who you're writing to in order to connect with that audience. I mean, it's fundamental to pretty much everything across the board. So I'm really glad that you brought that up and I think applies pretty much to everything. Have you seen the newsroom? Yeah. Not the whole thing, but a few episodes. You need to have seen the first six minutes. That's like, like I said very early on in this conversation, it's like the recognizing when your beliefs might be wrong. What you think and what you experience are valid, but... Your beliefs and what you understand to be true might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Once you can break that piece, the rest is easy. Because then you, you get on that other side of being comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then new information becomes like, oh, I like this because it can help me better understand the world that I live in. Not, mm-hmm. oh, I don't like this because it contests my reality. So the first six minutes mm-hmm. of the newsroom is that main character, the sorority girl comes up and says, what makes America the greatest country in the world? And you know, the guy on the side says freedom and freedom. And the woman on this side says liberty and some other bullshit. And the guy in the middle says the New York Jets. <laughs> and they're like, I'm going to hold you to an answer. Like, mm-hmm. Not the New York Jets. And he goes, there is zero evidence to support the fact that the United States is the greatest country in the world. We're 27 maths, and literacy, this, that, the other. We leave the world in three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita. Number of adults who believe the uh, angels are real. And military spending, where we out, where I spend 26 of the next people, 25 of whom are allies. And this is not the fault of a sorority girl like yourself, that you're, in fact, part of the worst generation, period, ever generation. He just goes, like, off on a tangent. And, like, it is fact that the United States is not number one in most categories, aside from, like, GDP, dollars we spend on incarcerated citizens and military spending. Where was, like, what he said is fact. Like, it's just... But yet here we are, star-spangled awesome, like, we're the best country there. Like, if we can take a second, liberal, conservative, anybody across the country, take a second to identify that we are not, we are a superpower, but we are not by any stretch the greatest whatever, but responsibility of being a superpower is that we have to push ourselves to be the greatest. And we got to lift ourselves to that point, and that comes from bringing up knowledge and bringing up our uneducated aren't the most uneducated in the world. But we can do better. And we have that obligation to do better because we are the superpower for now. Like the accountability piece of it, right? You know, like holding ourselves to an accountability of not letting crazy stuff happen or not. Holding yourself to an accountability and also not cheating. You guys go to the gym. You're like, oh, I'm going to do, you know, three sets of eight. And then on third set, you get to like six and then you kind of do seven and you're like, that's good enough. I'm out. Yeah. Do that on every single workout that you do for decades, you're just not going to get results because you're just shortchanging yourself. Yeah. And so here we are, we're like, ah, we're the best healthcare system in the world. Sure, we have some of the best healthcare in the world here, but like here we don't. Yeah. Like if we really want to be the best healthcare in the world, how about we get this down here? Like yeah. let's get ten more million people to get this kind of healthcare or twenty. Like I'm not asking for everybody. 
do I believe in universal healthcare? Absolutely. I think it's the smart idea. Do I think we should get there tomorrow? Fuck no, there's no way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just not happening. Yeah. yeah. You've heard of uh, the notion of brave space versus safe space. I'm pretty sure, I think we share very similar beliefs and some aspects. So I personally am against the idea of safe space. I'm against the whole concept. Because safe space is designated to create a safe space where you can speak your mind without the consequences of speaking your mind. But safe space has evolved for the past 10 years into sheltered space, right? Yeah. And the thing that in Teach America and a lot of nonprofit we push for is, nonprofit is weird, right? Because a lot of us are SJWs, like social justice warriors who are gone homes about everything. I'm, I'm against that as well because nuances once again. Uh, but one thing that we do talk about is brave space where it's not about being safe, but it's about seeking discomfort and having the intentional intention to have the intellectual dialogues and conversations where yeah. I listen to your agreements or disagreements and we let the ideas flow and yeah. see where that leads us. That's brave space. What's the basis of bravery though? By being uncomfortable, by willing to say something that may be controversial or different from the other side of the party without the fear of consequence or ridicule. That's brave. And I think it takes courage. Especially in today's censorship society, I think that takes extreme courage. So it takes courage. How does one develop courage enough to be in a brave space? By doing the uncomfortable thing over, over and over again. again. And your upbringings, your genetic nature, nurture, everything, yeah. right? Okay. So many attributes. Because like, I like the idea. Brave space sounds like a great idea. Yeah. And this idea of being comfortable, being uncomfortable is a great idea. But it is, in, again, I think I said it earlier in the podcast, but like, it is very important that I recognize every time that I say it's important to get comfortable being uncomfortable, that I have a series of privileges yeah. that allow that to be a lot easier for me than a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. I don't have to exist in the world in a state of general discomfort mm-hmm. because I walk out there and I'm a straight white male. And like, I'm six foot plus, like I'm not overweight. Like all of the luxuries and the privileges of life, aside from some might argue my religion, but Judaism is not an outward appearance. So like, I don't get judged in it on the bat. I get every possible benefit of the doubt. And because of that, it's easier for me to get comfortable being uncomfortable. I exist in a state of comfort and then I have to step out to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like I have to make an intentional move to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Trans folk, black people, people of color, ethnic minorities, like they just exist already in a state of varying degrees of discomfort. Yeah. And so even just what I'm saying doesn't apply as much because when your existence already has some level of discomfort, you're comfortable being uncomfortable because you exist uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Your hope is to get some time to be comfortable. My pitch of the comfortable being uncomfortable is to people like me who get the benefit of being comfortable most of the time because it's our obligation as the people that get to be comfortable to step into uncomfort to allow those who are generally uncomfortable to take on comfort. And so like brave spaces is a great idea, but it's brave for me to be uncomfortable, quote unquote. But realistically, it's not that brave because at the end of the day, there are people out there that go out every single day and have to be uncomfortable. It's the reason why we love police officers because they go out in the line of duty every single day and bravery and military folk, they're going out there and bravery, like risking your life for something, bravery, but like brave spaces, like for some people, it's just their existence. I think what really comes to mind there is the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can only oh, yeah. be in a you can only be in a brave or safe space if you have that safety like reached at the end and like as you move up those additional ones are almost like privileges that you've been able to reach that past thing like 
there's just so many layers to it all. And I think the other thing that I was thinking about in terms of brave space is there's an assumption of respect built in. Like in order for a brave space to exist, you need to have respect, which unfortunately, because of this 20% Brussels sprouts situation that's going on, people don't bring respect to those conversations, which is why... You know, I'm so grateful for this space to have this yeah. conversation with you guys. That also a sense of trust. Yeah, trust, respect. Like that doesn't always exist with a people that don't know each other, people yeah. that don't see to eye to eye. People's coming back to the id, the egos. People's egos get involved in those specific conversations. So, I agree with both of you. It's a great idea, but I think in practice sometimes it's difficult yeah. because of all of those variable. But I agree that I, I'm not a fan of the safe space idea either because mm-hmm. I think that that's just turned into a an opt-out for hard conversation. So what what just happened, that was my intention with the question. So I like the concept you added, and I was going to add that. So Brave Shit was intended for white people. Exactly. Because yeah. if you look at cancel culture, call up reverse signaling, who started that white people, right? And the people who are usually most offended isn't us. It's you guys in a lot of cases, right? So Brave Space wasn't intended for people of color because... When I talk about microaggression, when I talk about my racist experience, yeah, sure, they're unpleasant, but I'm not uncomfortable because I've lived through that experience. Yeah, that's your normal. Yeah, it's, I lived through that myself. And obviously, I'm Asian, I'm not black, and obviously, it's all, a lot more, way worse for them. So, brave space was Again, worse is a qualifier. Like, how can we subject? That's another thing we got to get away from just generally. People's experiences are hard, period, to them because yeah. they don't know different. Yeah. So, yeah, my experience, I have all of the privileges in the world, but like, there are things that stress me out and that so make hard. me upset and yeah. that way on my mental health and they are hard to me there are also those experiences for other people the luxury for me and the privilege for me is that my hardships have nothing to do with the color of my skin and the things that are hard for me take two steps after i wake up in the morning as opposed to the first thing that i wake up in the morning it's two things down the road when somebody talks to me instead of before they even get to know me like i said earlier with the point about when you meet conflict and like addressing the validity on the other side, like we are so interested in the valid points of our own argument, because realistically speaking, if you're in an argument, you want to sure up your side first. You want to make sure that I have good arguments and my arguments are right, that there is no credence lent to the validity of other arguments, specifically in this case, the hardships of other people. They are hard, period. Mm -hmm. Ranking hardships does nobody any good ever at all. Because I can't know the hardships that come with being a person of color or a gay person or a trans person in this country, in this world. I can't, I won't, I have no, there's no way. I can listen and I can empathize and I can do my best to understand. I can't know. And therefore the hardships that I experience will be my level of heart. Like that's just what I understand to be hard. I have to recognize that there are hardships that other people experiences that I cannot, will not, and will never understand and they're allowed to like hold those hard because at the same token i have hardships that other people don't know and don't experience and like might belittle because they'll belittle them but like will weigh on my mental health and will be hard for me to the extent that we can all do that better world granted sometimes we got to recognize when we're wrong like white people have done bad shit and most of that comes from our inability to recognize the hardships of other people i'm gonna leave it at that yeah, so that that's called uh, experience before insight. Yeah, yeah. So like, you can be as insightful as you can, but without the lack of relevance to the experience, you can only relate so much. Yeah. And I think like you talked about 
a few things and one of them talks about is like the identity politics aspect right when you yeah. start to like hardship when you identify everything as a group you lose the nuances which is what happens yeah it also talks about the rationality piece if you look at objectively every consumer is not rational that's a fact yeah however to themselves there is no such thing as self-perceived irrationality because when you're about to enact a certain action you rationalize it you rationalize it no one in this world would do something that's irrational to them that's impossible that's human nature really because i sometimes think that i do irrational <laughs> shit no and then i'm doing irrational shit we can get in that talk okay. about my penn state experience but like <laughs> so i think there's yeah, a lot of that we could talk through penn state especially he did just mention it and even because you were president at the frat for a while i was i think effective leadership might be a cool way to like bring in some politics stuff some experience stuff and just like leadership in general when i ran there were three other people who were running and then the minute that i said i was running they dropped like i said hardships it's the thing that encompasses your mind when i was in greek life that was one of the most important things in my life looking back obviously trivial but like mm -hmm. and there was a lot of tension and othering and lack of understanding and lack of humanizing of just pledge classes between fucking sophomores and freshmen or juniors and sophomores like there's just like this holy disconnect upper class lower class yeah it's crazy and also so a pi started like the year before i got there so like we pledged like in a full sense of the word pledge the founding fathers the grades older than us didn't they were just like the nationals came in and they said you are the frat now welcome and so it was this weird dichotomy of like they obviously cared about the organization because they wouldn't have joined an organization if they didn't care about something, whether that's the fuckery that happens around being in a fraternity or like developing close relationships and brotherhood or, you know, being a part of THON or participating, whatever the thing is that they cared about, they obviously cared about something to be a part of the organization, but they didn't quote unquote earn it by going through the pledge process. And so people in my grade and the grade below went through a more traditional pledge process. And so there was a disparity of like, you didn't earn this spot the same way I did. Mm -hmm. I think that I was able to speak that underlying feeling of like, they didn't earn this, why are they running this feeling? Mm -hmm. And it feels very like generational even, like they have no idea what it's like to actually start a fraternity and think they know how to run everything, but they don't mm -hmm. from the upperclassmen. And so it was like, obviously the year in Israel helped because you mature a whole fuckload when you go off to another yeah. country and deal with one of the most contentious conflicts in the history of humanity. But, yeah. you know, again, being like at that precipice of conflict, like where people were, couldn't seem to agree with each other, being able to identify the things that both needed and being able to kind of make them feel good about the beliefs that they had. Because like, my pledge class and the younger pledge class, they were fucking idiots. Like, they didn't know how to run an uh, organization. Fraternity is different than organization. But, like, I'm going to say organization just for the sake of, like, discussion. But they didn't know how to run an organization. They just wanted to party all the time. And, like, mm -hmm. that's it. They wanted to party all the time. Which, like, fair. That's why a lot of people join Greek life. Because they want to party. And they want to have, yeah. you know, girls over. And they want to just kind of... Access to cheap booze. They just... They want the debauchery. Like, that's... Yeah. It's an appeal. Like... It's part of the reason why I joined. Absolutely. It's fun as fuck. Like, I'm not going to... There are a holy set of issues and problems that underlie and undertone that whole thing, but it's fun as fuck. Yeah. And that's what one particular set of people wanted. And the other were just the new founders and the ones that the national organization had their eye on. And so, like, it was different. It was not 
let's get the hottest girls here or let's tear climb or let's be the best or let's, you know, throw the best party, biggest party. They were like, let's like, you know, make good friends. Like that's brotherhood and close relationships with particular sororities and, you know, measured parties and measured social events. Like let's not blow a gasket on this one and being able to kind of recognize and, and realize that both feelings about how an organization was supposed to work were valid and, you know, trying to thread the line between the two of them was, yeah, probably why I ended up as president and probably what I spent most of the year that I was there doing. And it's funny because when you're 20 and 21 years old, you don't think about it like that at all. You're just like, I just want to, I just want to help my brothers have a good time <laughs> and like get through school and pass classes. But then I think that a, it was an incredibly valuable experience because I took it outside of that context. Like I really try to make it a growth opportunity and a growth experience and, and dealing with conflicts on a regular basis. And I joined a fraternity because I wanted the debauchery and I wanted the craziness. So like I wanted to make sure that we had socials when we had socials and I was going to get people in, in line, including the houses when it needed to get done and, you know, make sure that we were cool with the IFC when we needed to do what we needed to do with the IFC. And like, mm -hmm. it was my job to make sure that all the friction was gone so that we could do all the fun stuff. Yeah. And, you know, where other people had to step in to help to reduce the friction to like really put into perspective the reason why you do that. My first week as president, we were put on probation because we just didn't do any of the things you need to like. In the IFC, you had to like submit an annual report about like the community service hours that you did and the philanthropy dollars that you raised and the, da -da 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 and the educational programming, like all the shit you had to do. I'm like, we just fucking didn't do it. Like, <laughs> or like we did and it was just like improperly submitted or something. But like my first week, it was just like probation. You didn't do your shit. And I was like, fuck, like, you serious? They're like, yeah, you're not allowed to have a social for a month. I was like, oh my God, if I have to go here and can't throw one social for a month, there's going to be a fucking mutiny on my hand. Like somebody, they're going to think this is the hardest thing of all time because they can't drink booze and dog the girls at college. And that's what the college experience is about. Yeah. So like figuring out how to deal with that. It's like problem solving. How did you deal with that first month? Because I can imagine for some of the lower class people or lower grades, they were pissed that there weren't socials and stuff. And like, what did that first month look like? Did you try and like reshift a perspective or just kind of like so we got out of that probation because okay. I hear you that's rule number one is to figure out a way out of it first but um, no I, we ended up going through like the, the paperwork that got filed and like re-justifying things and being like oh like this was actually correct and they were like oh, okay like fine you know how yeah yeah you know how Greek life politics works at the end of the day just you know rub a little bit on somebody the right way and things will be okay. And yeah. so we did that and yeah, we got off probation. It was fine. But the nice thing about it is that people don't change unless they have to. And so like, it took us probably 10 days to get off, like top to bottom. So like sit in the meetings and like get all the calls and nationals on the phone and advisors and meeting with Roy Baker, who is a lovely story. If you can find him online nowadays, <laughs> boy, what a weirdo, but like dealing with all that. But in those 10 days, like really reframing like what it means to be in a fraternity. Cause like, yeah, sure. We can fucking party as much as we want, but like we also have to do these things. This was created originally for a set of values. And like, to the extent that we can match these values, let's try how successful or unsuccessful I was. is really, you know, anybody's guess. Greek life has a lot of other problems that are systemic and run real deep and run beyond me and run generationally and throughout the country. So to the extent that that, you know, is succeeding or non-succeeding is hardly a, an indication of how well or unwell I did. It's probably just an indication of, you know, things that need to be changed within the system generally and 
as much as I was a president of a fraternity, I wasn't out here changing Greek life culture on campuses generally. Still existing within the framework that currently exists, like the framework of fraternities, like as much as you can do for the specific time for the specific fraternity, it's still undertoned by what fraternity life around the country is. Yeah. Did it give you any insightful lessons to like leadership in general or just like whether it's personal or things that you saw at other places that didn't work as well, things that you were doing that were valuable or weren't valuable, just kind of like a holistic leadership lens? I think that it taught me first and foremost that leaders are at the front, not at the back, in a particular sense. This, I think this is Greek life, fraternity life specific. It's probably broader, but in this particular organization, it was better to mimic the behavior and do it and like build by in that way. Mm-hmm. Lead by example, yeah. more or less? There was always this mantra that kind of undertoned my, my mind. So you want to clean the, the house. It was a fucking shit show. Like, you have a social, there's beer cans everywhere, the floor is gross, there's trash everywhere. Like, you have to clean it up because it's also where you live and, like, where you do things and study and eat and chapter and, like, your home. So, like, trash. Trash is always an issue. Nobody has to fucking take out the trash. Trash is disgusting. So there's sort of the three levels that I had in my head. There was the, I have to take out the trash because literally nobody else will do it. There's the, they'll take out the trash. They won't really want to. And we'll all take out the trash because we want to. It's kind of the idea of buy-in. Like, can, can you build buy-in to a specific vision, set of goals, set of values, whatever it is. I guess this is where the part expands beyond Greek life. Anything you're doing, any message you're creating, any legal argument you're making, like, can you create sufficient buy-in as to the people wanting to take out the trash themselves? To do the thing that is hard for themselves because it's better in the long run or like a 401k. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck wants to take out money for their 401k? I hate that. To take out $100 out of my paycheck every time, whatever the hell. Like, I hate that. The idea is that John in 30, 40, 50 years from now will be like, oh, thank you for doing that thing then so that I can be comfortable now. I don't know. And we live in a very good instant gratification culture, so overcoming that is really hard. Yeah, thanks for sharing, John. I think it's very cool that you are able to have the reflective ability in retrospect to reflect upon your experiences from your fraternity years. And all three of us were in Greek life. And, you know, all three of us in late 20s. And of course, I think it's cool and it's unique and interesting that you were able to extract the transferable skill sets from your college days into a broader, more macro aspect so with that being said you are someone with educational background expertise training and you come with myriad of skill sets and experiences so if you were to become a mentor and start a mentorship program for either your younger self or other younger generation out there what are some of the advices that you leave our audiences with today it's a good question i think that first and foremost the advice so i I got it from my my dad my first year out of school is that this is a long haul and life is a long haul and that nothing happens overnight. That being said, every single day you can do something and whether that's learning something new or meeting someone new or taking a rest day because you need to for your mental health. It's, it's a long, hopefully long, long life that you got ahead of you to build something. And to the extent that you can do that, understanding that your experience is your own 
and it's real and it's legitimate. But also there are 350 million people in this country and seven and change billion people in this world. And those numbers are growing. And each of them have an experience and a story as fully encompassing as your own and as valid as your own. And also kind of similar to your own, like the mean potatoes that we were talking about. It makes the, the fire and the conflicts and it makes it a little bit more manageable and reasonable and even dilutes it a little bit because it's not, you know, an enemy. It's not another. It's another person with a valid story and a valid experience going through a thing with a particular set of beliefs. And like y'all can meet somewhere in the middle where you're at and you can have a conflict. You're allowed to have conflict, but you can do it in like a mutually respectful kind of way. Also, go birds. So well said, man. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Go birds indeed. And seriously, as the elections are starting to come up, I would love if people literally rewind 30 seconds, listen to John go through that, find the common humanity in everyone, find the common humanity with whoever you're talking to, whoever you're relating to. And it seems like a better world in that sense. So um, how can they connect with you if they have questions or would like to reach out and even share some of the things you're up to? Uh, so I'm kind of finishing up my law school education. Uh, like I said, I'm at the small business development clinic. So I open that space. If you want to be there, definitely reach out to me by email. I'm happy to you know talk to anybody, answer questions. John Shahar at temple.edu. Uh, follow me on Instagram, John Shahar 2040. That's pretty much my socials. Just out here trying to figure out the best thing to do with life and make the world a little bit better of a place one step at a time. So, super powerful message to wrap up this episode. I mean, the message is so powerful that you could hear the jet in the background <laughs> flying by to congratulate you for a message. But all you jokes- always like to conclude your message with a flyover. <laughs> so, but all jokes aside, we really, really appreciate the depth of wisdom, the depth of knowledge that you've carried on onto the show to share with both of us and to the listeners and to our listeners as always we will include all the information all the tags and as always if you have made it to this far thank you for listening until next time thank you for listening to another episode of discover more we release a new episode every monday on spotify and apple podcasts and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.